You're listening to the Talking Crops Podcast, a product of AgFacts.com. I'm your host, Chip Ward, and for this episode, we're going to be discussing lease agreements for farmland and the major problems that can occur if you don't have those agreements written down and signed by everyone involved. We'll also touch on how lease agreements may be different in different parts of the country and how commodity prices can have an effect on those lease agreements. I'm happy to have our guest, Eddie Davis, who's a farm manager and agent with Brownland and Farm Management in Rayview, Louisiana. He's also accredited through the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers. Now, Eddie, just for our listeners, can you tell them exactly what you do and just go, what goes on at your job on a day-to-day basis? We offer property management services both for investors, non-local owners, uninformed landowners, and in some cases there's heirs who inherit a piece of property, particularly agricultural properties, and they're not familiar with agriculture. When people establish a lease, is there anything crucial that's commonly left out? There's a number of number of things that go into a good written lease, but the thing most commonly left out, and, and, and I'm still amazed at how often I encounter it in this business, the thing most commonly left out is the written lease agreement itself. Time and again, we find landowners of even a thousand or more acres don't have a written lease agreement in place. So they're just doing it with a handshake and hoping they're for the doing best. doing it with a handshake. Ow. And there's nothing wrong with trust, and there's nothing wrong with good relationships. But when you do a lease on a handshake, you're assuming that the best-case scenario is going to happen for both parties every single year. And sooner or later, Chip, Murphy's going to come calling, and things are not going to be in a best-case scenario. And because there's no written lease agreement, things begin to get really sticky really quickly then. What kind of people are more inclined to just do a handshake agreement and not a lease? Farmers are comfortable with handshake leases, and frankly, the handshake lease is often in the favor of a tenant, especially if the landowner is not local. The farmer can treat the property like it's it's his own or her own, and there's nobody there really to say otherwise. And because there's no written agreement, uh, everything's left up to interpretation. Now, uh, we, we see that commonly a lot of these arrangements are are old. This is a way of doing things uh, that was much more common in times past. And, and, and I like uh, I like old things. They, they did things that way for a reason. But most of the time when these verbal handshake leases uh, began, the the original landowner probably lived on the property or lived in the general area. And they understood agriculture and they understood what was going on. And they put their eyeballs on that property on a regular basis. But times have changed. People have moved off of the farm. And often the, the, the landowner has moved off of the farm. But that old handshake agreement is still in place. Sometimes that, that handshake agreement has moved into a second or third generation on either or both sides. And so what, what granddaddy originally agreed to Nobody's really certain of anymore. And so that's why it's important to have 
first of all, above everything else, anytime you're considering a lease, the most important thing is to have that lease in writing. If it's on the back of an envelope, now that's not the best place to put it, but if it's on the back of an envelope, anything written down and signed by both parties is better than a verbal lease. And and it's not always, Chip, a matter of, of lack of trust between either of the two parties. You and I may have a verbal agreement. You and I may get hit by lightning, have a car accident, or have something happen to us that would put us in a position where we can't communicate the terms of any agreement that you and I may have reached between each other to our heirs and our successors and the people coming along behind us. And so to me, that's one of the main reasons to have that written lease is so that whoever picks up the pieces behind has something to go by. Wow, and you said that there are even leases out there that are or agreements that are still out there that are that have been going on for generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just yesterday, I negotiated a written lease between a second and third generation landowner. So the, 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 the father bought it. Property is now in the name of, in this case, daughters. And... There's a third generation of grandson, grandsons that are coming along behind them. And on the farmer side of it, the, the, the dad just passed away. That's been farming this property for 35 years. And I spent the day yesterday with the son. And there were so many things that if we rode around the properties, we discussed different things. He said, well, I think dad did this. But the two parties to the original handshake agreement that was entered into 35 years ago are now both deceased. And a lot of water's passed under the bridge, and nobody's really sure exactly what they agreed to in specific terms anymore. And so it leaves a lot of questions unanswered for both parties. Besides the scenario you just described, can you think of any other just, I guess, absolute horror stories that have happened because somebody did not have a written agreement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. In most cases, now I'm in Louisiana, and most of my experience is in Louisiana. And Chip, I guess I should throw a disclaimer in here at this point that I'm not an attorney, and, and this is not legal advice, and that anybody that, that uh, is looking at a lease should consult probably a farm manager, but also consult an attorney perhaps. But I've heard a number of horror stories, but the courts, particularly in Louisiana, like I say, that's where my experience is, is most will favor many times the farmer over the landowner really i've had i've had instances where where a tenant says landowner gave me a 10-year verbal lease at 50 dollars an acre well chip times have been good for the last six or seven years now 2014 and 2015 have been much tougher but if you go back to 2008 or 9, and you institute a 10-year lease at $50 an acre on land that, if it's irrigated in this area, in this case it was, on land that could have been paying 150 or $75 an acre, that's a horror story for that landowner. Yeah. They, they can't get the rent that their land rightfully should bring. They've got no proof that that is the actual agreement 
because one of the parties is already gone. They're already deceased. There's nowhere to go back to. There's nobody to testify to it. And and there's no way to break that lease. And so, you know, they're losing $100 an acre plus for a number of years. And even what, what something else that does and how it ties into the real estate business, yep, if that unwritten 10-year lease is in effect and they go before a judge and the judge deems, and again, I'm not a legal expert, but the judge deems that lease is valid, that's going to drastically affect the value of that property should those landowners want or even worse, need to sell it in the interim. Because a new landowner can't capture income. Right. Now, that verbal lease, I believe, that verbal lease breaks. So perhaps if the verbal lease breaks, it, it, it doesn't affect the value of the property as much. But they don't want to have to sell the property in order to break the lease. Right. So it's quite a conundrum uh, to, have those, to have those verbal leases. I think those things, for the, for the benefit, again, of managing risk, and in this case it's managing the risk for your heirs and successors on both sides, it's better off with a written lease, with a written agreement, where both parties know what they agreed to, and that thing can be assigned and be picked up by a second party that comes along as an heir or as a successor and pick that thing up and, and work with it. Now, there's a number of, of parts. You were asking about parts that you know people leave out. Right. And there's really a, only a few main moving parts to the lease. You've got the, the parties the two parties, the lessor and the lessee. And it's important to have both entities named and identified correctly. Uh, rather than uh, the entity that owns the land should be the lessor. The, the business name of the farming entity needs to be the lessee in, in the event that it's a corporation or an LLC or a partnership rather than having the individual's name on there. Right. In the event that things go south and, and you have to pursue rents or, or work out other things, you need to know who the two parties you're really dealing with are. So you've got the two parties. You've got the description of the property. Sometimes that gets left out, but you need to have the description of the property. Legal description's good, and often, I, I, almost always, I try to attach a map to further clarify what's in that legal description. So you've got the, the two parties, you've got the description of the property, the length of the term, how long is that lease going to be, you've got the consideration, what's going to be paid for that lease, what's the rent going to be, and what what form of rent uh, is it going to be? In other words, is it a cash rent, is it a crop share, is it a revenue share or income share lease, is it a flex lease somewhere in between, or is it, and, and in my mind this is almost not a lease, but is it a uh, a custom farming lease? I know that you normally deal with situations in Louisiana, but can you think of ways that leases are drawn out differently in different parts of the country? Like, does is there something that you need to include in a lease in Louisiana that you might not have to include elsewhere, and vice versa? There, there's different things. Uh, absolutely, Chip. There, there's different things. Uh, in other parts of the country, we are active in Arkansas and Mississippi as well. And, and there are always specific things that are related uh, many times to either farming practices in that area 
And as you move geographically, farming practices will differ. Rental rates will differ. And, and in some areas, certain rental agreements or rent structures uh, are different and more common in some areas than in others. And we see some moving back and forth of that. There always is. And then uh, things related, related to the specific crops that are grown. I have some provisions in my lease here in Louisiana for rice that, that wouldn't be very useful or practical to have in there for a farmer in the Midwest who's growing corn and soybeans. And so those things, again, another example of that would be cotton. Further south in Louisiana, there's sugarcane. So there's some differences in crops, uh, but generally the lease structure will be the same. There's certain things you want to deal with. Again, if there's on-farm storage, things of that nature. Are there buildings on the farm? You want to address those and not just the land. You, you really want to address everything that is there with the property that the farmer is going to have the use of while he's there. So you, you want to address those things. And again, in certain parts of the country, rental rates certainly are different and different types of rental structure are, are different. When I say rent structure, uh, traditionally, most farmers have either been on a straight cash rent where there's a fixed dollar figure per acre that's paid for the year's use of the property, or there's been a, a crop share arrangement where the landowner gets a percentage of the crops and, and may or may not pay a percentage of the, of the expenses or certain expenses. Something that's made its way into our area, and I think has been more common in other areas, is a flex lease that has a base figure in it. It either may be a base cash figure or a percentage of the crop, whichever is greater, or in some cases I've seen it be a fixed number of bushels, or in the, count, in the case of cotton or rice pounds that's guaranteed to the landowner where the landowner gets so many bushels of corn, so many bushels of beans, so many pounds of cotton is guaranteed to the landowner. And in the event of a disaster, that means that that tenant might even have to go out onto the market and buy those bushels and deliver them to the landowner. You were talking about flex agreements, and I know there's been some push from some farmers to move to that type of an agreement due to dropping commodity prices. Have you seen any trends or changes in lease agreements due to commodity prices dropping that doesn't have to do with a dollar amount? You know, in, in addition to having to, in many cases, there's going is and is going to be a need to renegotiate cash rents and, and in some cases perhaps even share rents and the floor in some of these flex leases. In addition to that, we, we've had, and I've done this historically with cash leases, had some provisions that address long-term expenses. It may not be long-term, but I'd say mid-term. Things like lime and, and fertility, where we don't have a, a tenant on a short-term cash lease, and I'm not a big fan of long-term cash leases at all. So a short-term cash lease doesn't leave a tenant much room to say go and put out lime where he's going he's gonna to bear all the expense now and he's going to get the benefit of that lime really more so in the second and third year of production that aren't guaranteed in his lease. So there's no motivation for him to go out and spend that money right now to put that lime out there. And so we need to address some of those types of issues that the short-term cash lease uh, kind of creates in and of itself by its very nature. 
Have you had to deal with changing lease agreements anytime soon because of commodity prices? Yes, we're, we're in the process of renegotiating uh, rental rates on, on a number of properties right now. It's been, my, it's been my opinion for some time that cash rents tend to lag two years or more behind commodity prices, where when commodity prices begin to trend downwards, starting back at, in, in the latter part of 2013, that, that we saw folks still had a, had a good amount of equity, they had a good amount of cash, they were willing to keep farming the same acres in 2014 to a lesser degree in 2015, and I won't call it on a burn rate where they were actually maybe not in a positive cash flow, but they had cash or they had equity that they were willing to put into that crop and hold on. Farmers really don't like to let land go if they don't have to, if they're not strongly motivated to, to let land go. They just don't like to, generally speaking. And so they stay in there and they try to hang in there. But we've reached a place now where the lenders are really using the eraser on their pencil and everybody's working really hard, particularly in this area, to try to figure out how things are going to cash flow. And when a crop won't cash flow on a piece of property, one of the easiest numbers to hit it, particularly is a cash rent. That's one of the biggest single line items in that budget. And it's one of the it's one of the easiest to change with your pencil, but it's always difficult to go sit down with a landowner. None of us like to take a pay cut, and and that's essentially what you're asking the landowner to do is take a pay cut. And so that's never a popular thing. It's always tough to go sit down and discuss it, but it's better for farmers. It's better for land managers to be up front with landowners and, and say, look, this is where we're at. This is what commodity prices are doing, and, and sooner or later, uh, if there's no change there, we're going to have to make an adjustment in our rental rate on cash rents. Eddie, if people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do it? You know, we've got a website, Chip, yeah. and it's brownlandandfarmmanagement.com. Or they can just pick the phone up and, and give me a call at 318-8990. All right. Once again, this is Eddie Davis. He's a farm manager from Rayville, Louisiana. Eddie, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Chip. You have a good one, too. At AgFacts, we're serious about crops. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Or you can keep up with the latest news in agriculture at agfax.com. That's A-G-F-A-X dot We'll keep you informed. Copyright AgFacts, LLC. All rights reserved.